been working through a series called A Picture of God, and today we're going to be continuing on that. We've been looking at different stories and events from the life of Jesus, uh, believing that when he told Thomas that if we see him, we will see the Father, that when we look at Jesus, we get a good picture of God. And so if you want to know what God is like or what God acts like or characteristics, we look to Jesus primarily to see the person and the character of God. And today we're going to be in um, the book of Mark. So if you have a copy of the scriptures here, you can turn to Mark 10. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's some in the back on a table. Uh, you can grab that. You can keep that if you don't have a Bible. That's for you. Uh, you can look on your phone wherever you want. We're going to be in Mark 10. Um, and at first glance, the stories that we're going to look at today seem somewhat disconnected. Uh, they probably seem like they're not connected at all. One is about uh, the disciples, James and John. And the other is about a blind man named Bartimaeus. But I think what we'll see is that they actually are pretty closely connected. Mark put them together for a reason the way that he did. So to start, I want to ask a question. Has, has the trajectory of your life ever shifted, like radically? Like all of a sudden, something was different. All of a sudden, something was different. Maybe, maybe you had a, a job change, you got a job, or you lost a job, and suddenly you were in this, this new trajectory. Or you had a relationship that started, and your course of your life changed, or maybe a relationship ended, and the course of your life changed. Or maybe you got new information about something, or you gained some knowledge about something, and it radically changed the trajectory of your life. I think probably most of us would say yes. Uh, and it probably happens multiple times in our lives that our lives shift a little bit the course that we're on. Well, uh, it, it happened to me a couple years ago. For, for seven years, I was on staff at my home church. Uh, I was overseeing missions, outreach, and benevolence, MOB. I was overseeing the mob. That was how I remembered what I oversaw. And um, I had several hundred volunteers. It's a big church. So I had several hundred volunteers uh, in the different ministries that I was overseeing. We had several hundred thousand dollars in budget to work with. Like, I was having a blast. We, we, were, we were doing kingdom work in the community uh, around the world through our denomination, the, the Christian Missionary Alliance. And uh, we were just having a great time. But I started feeling this sort of, this inkling towards, towards more leadership. But I wasn't sure what to do with it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't really have a big ego. I don't have a whole lot of self-confidence to be like, I'm supposed to be a senior pastor somewhere, like, up the ladder we go. Like, I just don't think like that. And I wasn't really having total clarity from the Lord about what this meant for, for me and my family. And so I was praying and pursuing and asking different people. And at one point, while I was the missions pastor, we decided to do sort of a, like a missions festival, right? We're going to celebrate international work, celebrate the denomination of what we're doing. And I asked our new president of the denomination, uh, his name's John Stumbo, to come and speak. And so John comes, and he's a phenomenal guy. He's a great guy. He's an engaging speaker. And so we did a couple of different events with him, and then he preached on the weekend services at church. And as he was leaving, as he's getting ready to go to the airport, uh, if you've ever heard John talk, he had a medical procedure in which um, he, he was intubated for quite a while, and he had a feeding tube, so his voice is really kind of gravelly like this. He's getting ready to leave for the airport. He puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, Jim, the mantle of leadership is upon you. Like, first of all, who uses the word mantle in, like, common, <laughs> common language, right? Like, common everyday talk. But, but he's like, the mantle of leadership is upon you. And I hadn't really said much to him. It was like something prophetic happened in that moment in which my, the trajectory of my life went, like, we're, we're, okay, I'm, I feel this now. It was like a clarification from the Lord. And so it kind of put us on this, this new journey that ended up, up here uh, in Nazareth, kind of this new way for us and for our family. Have you ever had an interaction like that? Now, maybe it wasn't like the president of the denomination, like prophetically speaking over you, but have you ever had an interaction which just changed the course of your life, changed the trajectory and the direction that you were headed in? Well, 
what I would argue, what I'm going to go after today, is that an, inter- an interaction with Jesus and with the gospel has the potential to do that, to change the trajectory of our lives. And, and, and what I think we'll find is that it actually happens multiple times in our lives where we come to Jesus, either for the first time or over and over again in our lives, where we come to him and we're asking questions and seeking him, and he says, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? It kind of probes deeply into our spirit and into our souls saying, what do you actually want? What are you actually looking for? Why are you pursuing me? And so if you have a copy of scriptures, you can turn to Mark 10. Uh, We're going to read from this in just a second, but I need to set the context a little bit. Um, Last week I preached about Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the dead in the book of John. And we see that this is just before Passover. This is just before they're headed into Jerusalem for the final time to celebrate this holy holiday, Passover. And so the, the pressure is mounting around Jesus. There's crowds swelling around him. They're, they're saying, you know, we're going to make you king. We see this crowd walk with him into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. Maybe they're going to make him king by force. Maybe there's going to be a coup, but they're, they're believing that he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Savior. And meanwhile, the, the, the pressure around him is mounting from the Pharisees and from the religious leaders who are trying to squash this kind of supposed rebellion kind of squash this blasphemy of Jesus talking about him being the son of God and all these things. And, and so the pressure is mounting. There's this things happening where they're, they're moving up into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which if you remember is the commemoration of, of the Exodus, of being moved, the Israelites being moved out of Egypt hundreds of years earlier into the Exodus, into a new journey, into the promised land. And so Jesus and his disciples are moving towards Jerusalem uh, when we come to this passage in Mark 10. So if you look at Mark 10, verse 32, you can read along with me or you can just uh, listen as well. So, uh, Mark says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished. They were amazed at all the things Jesus had been doing. While those who followed were afraid. They weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Uh, Again, he took the 12 aside, meaning Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and he tells them kind of privately what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, meaning the Messiah, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, or the Romans, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So, this crowd is moving. They're headed up out of the Jordan Valley from the river up through Jericho. We're going to see and going into Jerusalem, climbing the Temple Mount, headed towards Jerusalem. And, and while on the journey, Jesus pulls his disciples aside like he often would do to speak to them somewhat privately about what was going to happen. And it says they're amazed. They're looking forward to all these great things that are going to happen. And he tells them, I'm actually going to go there and I'm going to be handed over to the Romans and I'm going to be killed. Luke records that the disciples don't pick up on this. Like somehow they can't understand what he's saying. They, they can't reconcile these two things in their minds that he's going to be the Messiah and the king, but he's going to die. Like they don't understand. They're kind of blinded to what's happening. But Jesus knows what's coming and he is resolute, Luke says. He turned his face towards Jerusalem and he was going there and he's bringing the disciples with him. So with that in mind, we come to verse 35 and look at what happens next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory, in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, he asked. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? 
We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So what's happening here? Well, James and John are uh, their brothers, all right? They're the sons of this guy named Zebedee. They had a fishing business together back up in the Galilee region. And, and they're part of Jesus's, what I would call his inner circle. Like if he's got the 12, he then has these three, James, John, and Peter. And so they're sort of at this, this special uh, relationship with Jesus. Earlier in the book of Mark, uh, he records that, that Jesus had renamed these guys when he first met them, the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder, like w- whether they were boisterous or like blustery, like we don't really know, but there's something about them that's thunderous. And there, there's a story where uh, they go into a Samaritan village and the people don't respond to Jesus quite well. And James and John are like, do you want us to call down fire on them? Do you want us to like have them burned up? Like this is the kind of mindset that they have, like this bold sort of uh, personality. And Jesus is like, no, we don't need to burn up the Samaritans. Like it, it's okay. Like we're just going to move along down the road. And so these, these sons of thunder come to Jesus and they, they state, they don't ask, they state, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is like classic business training, right? You go in and you ask for what's, what you want. You go in and make your demands known. You get while the getting's good. You go in and say, I want that raise that I deserve. I want more weeks of vacation, whatever. They're like, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus responds with, what do you want me to do for you? What, what do you want me to do for you? Now, think with me about this for a second. Jesus is God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We see throughout the Gospels that he knows people's thoughts before they even say them, before they come out loud. He knows their thoughts. Why is he asking them then? What do you want me to do for you? He already knows. I would argue that he's asking for their sake. He's asking the question for their sake to get them to look inward a little bit. It's for them that he's really asking this question. And they ask him to sit at his right and at his left, when he comes into his kingdom, when he comes into glory. So what's happening here? What are they, what are they talking about? Well, they want positions of authority, right? They, they want positions of power when Jesus sets up his kingdom, at least the kingdom that they're expecting is going to happen. They're saying, look, we've been following you for a little while now, Jesus, like we're part of the inner circle. We gave up our fishing business with our dad Zebedee to come and be with you. Uh, we, we were up on the mountain of transfiguration when you were glowing white, talking to Moses and Elijah. Like clearly we got this special relationship with you. We were there when you fed the 5,000, when the Pharisees were chasing you out of town, trying to stone you. Like we're in, all right? And so when you come into your power, we've been following you, Jesus. When we come into your power and you come into your kingdom, we want to really be in the inner circle. When you're on the throne, we want to sit to the left and right. We want to be right there with you. We want positions of power. So let me ask you a question. When did Jesus come into his kingdom? When when was Jesus crowned king? When was he pronounced king? Friends, at the cross. At the cross is when Jesus is pronounced king. king. He had this, this crown of thorns crushed onto his head, mocked in a purple robe like majesty. He was pronounced king of the Jews with the sign put over the cross, the, the, the mock, the mockery of it, the mock king of the Jews. And they don't even know what they're asking by saying, we want to sit at your left and right when you come into your kingdom. We want to be right there with you when you come into your kingdom. So Jesus responds and says, 
you don't know what you're asking. Can you really be, drink the cup that I drink? Can you be, be baptized with what I'm going to be baptized with? You sons of thunder, can you, can you do that? And they say, yeah, we can do it. We, we can do it. We, we, can, we can drink that cup. We can be baptized with you. Yep, we can, we can do that. And then they want to follow him, and they're willing to do so, and then he confirms, well, yeah, you're going to go through this. You will end up drinking the same cup as me, and you'll go through the same kind of baptism that I'm going through, but you'll end up dying for the kingdom. But he says, but it's not for me to decide who sits at my left and right. It's, that's already going to be decided later. That's not up to me who sits at my left and my right. And I found it fascinating that Dan said what he did. Who ends up sitting at Jesus' left and right when he comes into his kingdom? What's happening on his left and his right? Two other thieves, nailed to the cross, sitting at his left and his right. And this is why he's saying, this isn't for me to decide who sits at my left and right. You don't know what you're asking. When Jesus comes into his kingdom, there's these criminals there on his left and his right. And so he's probing them with this question of, of, what do you actually want me to do for you? But if you read on, it says that the other disciples get upset about this. Look at verse 41. It says, when the other 10 disciples hear about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're indignant with James and John. Why are they upset about this? Like, what is it about this situation that gets them fired up? I would say it's because they, too, wanted the special relationship with Jesus. They, too, wanted the authority when he came into his kingdom. They wanted to sit on thrones to the left and the right. And they're like, how dare you go and ask this question of Jesus? We wanted to ask that question of Jesus. Like, we, we wanted that. It's, it's, it's human nature, I think, in, in its fullness. One of the funniest parts about this we read in the, in the other accounts of this is that when James and John come to them, it's actually with their mom, like these sons of thunder. Their mom is actually the one who comes and presents them to Jesus and is like, hey, here's my boys. Can you, can you get them some positions of authority when they come in? And the other disciples are like, are you kidding? You brought your mom? Like, like this is how you're going to try to twist Jesus's arm? Like, come on. Like, but they wanted the power as well. They wanted the authority. And they were indignant that somebody else would ask for it. But see, this is really human nature, right? Like, to, to, to grasp for power. It's what James and John and their mom wanted. It's what the disciples wanted. It's what you and I want on a regular basis. We want more power. We come to Jesus expecting blessings so we can get things. We want, we want more power on the commute to work, right? Like we want authority in these places. We want the corner office at work so that we can, so that we can make the rules or bend the rules uh, for some people. We, we want authority over our kids so that they fulfill our, our wishes and our dreams. We want, people want influence over the pastor so the church will do what they want. That hasn't happened here yet, but you know what I mean. Like you've seen it happen. You've seen it happen in churches where people want to be close to authority. They want the leadership themselves because power corrupts because we are naturally self-serving people. It naturally comes out from within us. So the disciples, these other ones, are indignant with James and John and Mrs. Mrs. Zebedee, right? Like they're, they're mad at them for doing what they would have done as well. So Jesus answers them in a, in a fascinating way. Look at verse 42. So the disciples are indignant. And Jesus called them together and said this. You know that those who re- are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, or the rulers of the Romans, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of God for us. He's painting a picture of what we are to be as well, as as followers of Jesus. He's painting this picture for us. He's saying, guys, you live in this world and are stuck in its ways. You live in this world that's full of like the alpha dog who's running the show. It's a dog-eat-dog world, so you better be the alpha dog. So you better get into a position of authority, and you're making claims for this. You've been pushed along, pushed around so long by the Romans that, that yeah, now you want authority so you can push people around. Like, have you ever seen this happen in life? Like, I've seen it happen uh, in different ways with teachers or with law enforcement or people, whatever, like, where, where they used to be bullied, and now that they're in a position of authority, they then get to bully other people. Like, this is what they're after in this situation. And Jesus is saying, this is not the kingdom that I'm calling you to. This is not the kind of king that I am. That's how the earthly kingdom may work, but in my kingdom, greatness and power are found actually in serving others in being a slave to others. Now listen to this. He says, I'm not calling you to anything that I haven't and won't do myself. He's saying, I'm not calling you to anything I won't do myself, for I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life up for others, to give my life up as a ransom to free the world. Do you see it, friends? The the picture of God that Jesus is painting for the disciples in us, Jesus had every right. God had every right to, to come to earth and to wipe us out, to start all over, to put us into total subjugation. We've destroyed the earth. We've enslaved one another. We've cheated on our spouses, screamed at our kids, cheated to get ahead at, at work or at school. We've lusted after people and stuff. We've fought countless wars, pursued selfish gain, not cared for widows and orphans. And yet, here's Jesus saying, I didn't come to make you serve me and just do God's bidding. I could have, but I didn't come to do that. I actually came to serve you and to free you from the slavery to those things, to free you from the slavery to sin, from the slavery to to, to the ways of this world, to be a ransom to set you free. And he says, now I'm calling you to a new way now. I'm calling you to a new way to serve in this world, to love others. He says, yeah, you're the leaders, right? You're the disciples, you're the lead gang here in this new kingdom that's coming about, but you're not called to use that, that leadership to subjugate people. You're called to serve like I do and will. Friends, Jesus has called us to an entirely new way of living, an entirely different kind of kingdom. But this, this passage goes on, and I want to I just point something out to you about this. It's fascinating to me. Look at verse 46. So they're they're traveling towards Jerusalem. In verse 46, it says, Then they came to Jericho. Jericho was another kind of commuter city nearby. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Uh, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have pity on me. Many rebuked him. And told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Go get him. Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Uh, Throwing off his cloak aside, uh, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. 
The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Another translation of that is he followed Jesus on the way. So these two stories, right? Seemingly very different, different scenarios, but there's actually a lot of similarities. If we look at them, we see James and John. Mark lists their name. James and John, son of Zebedee, who was, you know, this fisherman. Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, which means uh, sort of honored or special. James and John called Jesus teacher, which is like basic, really knowledgeable one, right? What is Bartimaeus? He says Bartimaeus calls him son of David. He's, he's proclaiming him with this messianic sort of term. The disciples, James and John, say, do for us whatever we ask. There's pride, and Bartimaeus says, have mercy on me. Have pity on me. And he's expressing his weakness and his humility. The mo- their mom pushes them forward, right? James and John's mom pushes them forward. Meanwhile, the crowd is pushing him back. They're pushing him down. But to both of them, Jesus asks the same question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Again, this, this same question appears in both sections. Now, if you were just reading these stories at a good pace, you would miss this. If you're just reading them, it's like, oh, yep, James and John, great. Yep, serve people, great. Blind Bartimaeus, oh, look, he gets healed. Fantastic. Like, and you wouldn't see this question. This is, this is the beauty of, of studying deeply and reading slowly into Scripture. Why is it here? Like, like, why did Mark choose to, to you know, bring this event to the surface again? Why does Jesus ask this same question to both parties? I think if we dig a little bit deeper, we find the answer. Let's remember, Jesus already knows what this man needs, right? Like, in some ways, you'd probably think, like, he would have to be blind if he didn't know what this man needed, right? Like, clearly, he's blind, Jesus. This is what his need is. But again, Jesus is asking him, him this question. What do you want me to do for you? I think it's for this man's sake. Think about this man with me. Think about the the context of this man's life. He's likely been blind since birth, likely been blind since birth. Uh, We spent a year in in the Middle East. You've heard me talk about this before. And and what I can tell you is that traditionally in the Middle East, if, if, if you have a child with special needs, there's no program for them. There's no special needs program. They're just kind of hidden away. It's kind of embarrassed. The family's embarrassed of them. They're ashamed of them. So they just kind of keep them away. Like you don't see many kids with Down syndrome. You don't see many kids who are disabled. They're just kind of tucked away. This guy's probably been, been hidden away until he was an adult and they didn't know what to do with him. And so when other sons were old enough to go out and get a job and start contributing to the family situation, Bartimaeus gets put on a street corner. I'm like, well, you can't do anything else. So go and I guess, you know, try to pick up some change on the street. He's probably, probably living at home at night still with his family, but he has this this main possession that he has is this cloak, this sort of woolen kind of overcoat that he would, that he would use and probably helped bring shade during the day, protection from, from maybe rain if it came, maybe he would sleep on it or sleep under it sometimes like we've seen homeless folks do. Like It's Passover season, so Jericho is a kind of a commuter city during a high holy holiday like this. There's lots of pilgrims, religious pilgrims coming through town. There's probably getting a little bit extra coin during this time, right? Like Christmas time, you're a little bit more charitable. Like these folks are coming through town. They're probably giving him a little bit extra money, maybe a little extra compassion. But he's got his cloak and his protection. He's got his little money bag, and this is what he knows. This is what he's doing on the street corner. It's all he's ever known. And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. He's heard stories about this guy. 
Some, some are saying that he's the rescuer, the descendant of King David that's going to set up a new kingdom. He's a king, maybe. Royalty. Maybe he has an entourage with him. Maybe he's got a money guy that might shed some, a little bit more money to him. Maybe if I scream loud enough, this, this money guy might come over and just give me a little bit more money for my day. Jesus! Jesus, have pity on me, he's yelling out. And the crowd, like most crowds would do, is they push him back. They tell him, shut up, just be quiet. You're embarrassing us. Just, just stay over there in the corner. And he yells all the more, Jesus, have pity on me. And Jesus calls for him. And ironically, he, he tells the people who are pushing him down to go get him. He makes them go and serve him. And he says, he, Mark says he throws off his only possession. He throws off this cloak and he leaves it behind. That's security that he had. And he throws it off and he stumbles to Jesus. And Jesus comes and asks him that soul penetrating question. Okay, I'm here now. What do you want me to do for you? Now again, this question probably seems silly to us if you're just reading through this. Of, of course he'd ask for his sight, right? Like, He's blind. He wants to see. He's heard about Jesus. Of course he's going to ask for that, right? But, I, but think about this with me. All he has ever known is being blind. All he has ever known is begging on a street corner, sitting under that cloak all day, just hoping for a little bit of income to bring home to his family. He's never left Jericho, probably. Like, how could he? He's never gone up to Passover. How could he get there? He's blind. He couldn't see to get there. And not to mention, he's blind and unclean and really shouldn't be near the temple and shouldn't be near these holy people. So he's, he's never really taken part in society. His blindness is sort of a calling card. It's sort of his identity. His character has been shaped by it. So think about how differently his life will go if he asks for this and he gets it. Think about how differently your life would be. Like how dramatically would, would, it, would it be? How dramatically would it change if you suddenly got the things you've been asking for? If you suddenly got the things you've been going to Jesus for, how different would your life be? What if you got a new job? Would you have to move? Like, that would be radically different, would it? Do you really want that? What if every day you go to work complaining about your really nasty boss and suddenly you get a good boss and a nice boss? You're going to have to change your daily habit, aren't you, when you come home? What are you going to say? He's a good guy. Like, it's going to change your characteristics a little bit. What if you suddenly won the lottery? You know, I've, I know people who play the lottery every day. Like, what, what if you suddenly won the lottery? How different would it be if you suddenly had like a couple million dollars? Like, how different would your life be? How different would your family be? How different would your friends treat you? See, I think this is why Jesus is asking this question. What do you want me to do for you? Really allowing it to soak into his soul a little bit. And Bartimaeus responds with, my teacher, my Lord. The word there is uh, rabbi. It's not just rabbi. It's, it's my rabbi, my teacher. He's not just some knowledgeable guy. He's saying, my Lord, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. And there is a reason to celebrate that. And there's a reason to, to, that it points to the divinity of Jesus. But I think there's more. I think there is more to this story. I think both, both James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, suddenly find themselves in a new life. Suddenly find themselves going in a new way on the way with Jesus, in a new direction. They're now part of the people of the way, as the early church was called. The disciples find themselves following Jesus into a life of servanthood, 
into a life of being a slave to others. Bartimaeus finds himself having thrown off his security, this cloak, he's taken it off, and he's, and he's gotten rid of his old way of life of begging, and now he follows Jesus up to Jerusalem. He's going to follow him to the temple, now part of the, the throng of people that will usher Jesus in on Palm Sunday, proclaiming him as the Savior. But both parties need to do business with their souls. Both parties need to allow this thing to settle into them. And, and when Jesus asks them, what do you actually want me to do for you? They need that to soak in a little bit. And I think the same is true for us today, right? Are you prepared to really dive into that? Because the picture of God that Jesus is painting here is, is one of a God that, that doesn't, isn't just a genie that doles out wishes and gives us whatever we want, whatever our hearts desire. Thank God he doesn't because we are a selfish bunch of people and we're a mess but God wants to answer our prayers and, and pursue us, but he's asking us, what do you really want? Do you really want a changed life? Do you really want to change trajectories? And Jesus is painting a picture of our God calling us to join him on the way, to join him in, in growing, to join him in healing, to join him in serving the people around us, to serving our world. God calls us to join him on the way of, of actually going lower, not to a place of authority, not to a place of subjugating the world around us, joining him on the left and the right of his throne, carrying our crosses to a place of being willing to, to die to self to serve the world around us. You see, when, when, Jesus, when we come to Jesus and ask for our heart's desires, he's very likely to say, what do you want me to do for you? And sometimes he will do it and he will give us new sight and sometimes he will challenge our hearts and convict us to be people who are serving and loving the world around us. This is a call to a new life, and it has, it has profound effects on these men. It has profound effects on them. The blind man leaves his cloak, starts an entire new life on the way with Jesus. James goes on to be a servant and the leader of the church and is martyred for it. John goes on to write some of the greatest books in Scripture all about the love of God and ends up exiled on an island for his, his, you know, his old and dying days. Like They are radically changed by this encounter with Jesus. So what about us? Jesus is painting a picture of God here in this passage and elsewhere that we've been talking about of God allowing us to boldly approach him and ask him to move on our behalf. But let us think deeply on whether or not we truly want the new life that he calls us to. Whether we truly want him to do for us what we're asking. Are we asking for a position of power and blessing like the sons of Zebedee were? Are we asking to truly see Jesus as Lord and to follow him into a new way of life? Are we willing to throw off our cloak, our protection, our security, our old way of doing things to really encounter and walk with Jesus into the promised land, into a new life? Listen, you maybe have been a, a Jesus follower for a long time. You've been on the way for a long time. Are you being called to a deeper level of servanthood in your walk right now, to your family, to your loved ones, in your job, in your community? Are you sitting back enjoying the good life, the glory days? You finally made it. Have you found yourself disappointed that life hasn't been easier, that your power isn't paying off in more satisfying ways? Could it be that Jesus actually wants you to join him in going lower? in being a servant and finding people to love and serve and minister to. Or maybe you believe that Jesus is Lord and, and maybe even my teacher, like, like Bartimaeus says, is he calling you to throw off your cloak, your protection, your old way of doing things and follow him into a new way? Are you pursuing Jesus with abandon or do you have one foot in the old world as well? Saying, well, maybe I want to hold on to this lifestyle of begging as well. 
I'm not sure I quite want to let go of that part of my identity. Do you truly see things without blindness the way that Jesus wants you to? I think oftentimes what happens is that we want the miracle, but we don't want the life change. Do you know what I mean? Like, we want the miracle, we want Jesus to do this awesome thing for us, but we don't want the life change that goes along with it. And I think that's a little bit of that behind that question of what do you actually want me to do for you? So what do you want him to do for you? Do you want to join Jesus on the way of, of making him truly king over every aspect of your life and joining him in serving the world around us? I, say, I was thinking about this, like, Jesus is not just an add-on to our life, like taking your, like, Chick-fil-A meal from a medium to a large. Like, it's, it's, it's not just going from grande to vente. Like, this is, like, totally different life and identity on the way of Jesus. And friends, we don't do this out of ourselves. This is not something we do out of our own selves. We do this, we love because he first loved us. Right? This is the gospel, that, that what we find in Jesus is a servant king who was ushered into Jerusalem just a few days after this. And rulers of the Jews and the Gentiles, they blindfold him. They take his sight away, and they hit him, and they spit on him, and they say, who hit you? Prophesy to us. Who hit you? And they, and they crush this, this crown of thorns on his head. They put this fake, this purple robe on him as this fake king, as this mock king. They gamble for his clothes as they take away his cloak and they, and they strip him naked and then they enthrone him as the king of the Jews, truly ushering in the kingdom of God, a kingdom of servanthood. Two criminals are placed on his right and on his left as he comes fully into his power, fully a servant, giving his life as a ransom for many, taking the penalty and the punishment that we deserve and giving us new life, dying for us so that we can have our spiritual blindness removed, so that we can see God for who he truly is and live in a new way. Friends, this is the picture of our God that loves us. He was blindfolded and beaten so our eyes could be opened. He became a servant so that we could become sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ, receiving an entirely new kingdom. So can I ask you to process this question as we head towards Easter? What do you want him to do for you? Would you pray with me?